before the neighbors start stomping around again upstairs. What's going on, y'all? CA here, and I want to let you in on a little secret before this episode. If you ever wondered how I got so many interviews from folks all across the U.S. so easily, it's mostly thanks to Zencaster. Zencaster is an all-in-one online podcasting platform that allows you to record your guests at high-quality MP3 or WAV files on separate tracks to make your podcast editing streamlined and easy. And now, if you haven't guessed it already, a lot of thought is proud to be hosted on Zencaster's brand new creator platform, which means if you all need to do any remote recording for your own podcast, I got the goods, and there they are. I got the goods to help you get started with Zencaster today. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code Thought, no spaces. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. Zencaster, it's time to share your story. <clears throat> All right, add over and let's get to the show. What you're hearing is Chicago's Black and Indigenous Solidarity Rally that took place just a little over a year ago on July 17, 2020, when Chicago's BLM chapter and the Chi Nations Youth Council, a youth arts activist and educational space built by and for Native peoples in the greater Chicago area, marched side by side in protest against state-sanctioned police violence and brutality. Chicago, a place that was once inhabited by the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, and served as a home and trading grounds for other tribes such as the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Saxon Fox peoples. A word that once referred to the onion and garlic-rich marshes upon which many monuments to colonizers and enslavers still litter the landscape today. The group made their way to the Columbus statue in Grant Park, covered it in graffiti, hooded the bronze sculpture, and attempted to tear it down. CPD eventually met the crowd's bicycle wall and cloth masks with nightclubs and tear gas. Oh shit! She's gonna come up the fucking hill! and proceeded to guard the idol from those who were seeking to destroy it. In those four replayable hours, everything comes back together. The people, the land, the time. Once again, Black and Indigenous folks were together supporting each other's different yet conjoined fights against a colonial, racist, white supremacist society. The truth is that black and indigenous have never truly been separate. Those who are black in America were once indigenous elsewhere. 
and those who today are still indigenous in America are in many ways barred from the lands they once freely traversed. There have been many times when black and native peoples lost sight of a common struggle, when colonialism, anti-blackness, and whiteness led so many folks to believe that the blood in our veins is more important than the blood that was shed together on this land. But there are these moments that repeat. So what we do know that it's time for, it is time for aggressive allyship. It is not the time for division, not when for hundreds of years black and indigenous people have been oppressed, raped, slaughtered, ignored, stepped on, beaten, systematically and systemically violated. It is only time for the aggressive togetherness that we are demonstrating here right now. Right now. Right now. Moments like this one in 2020 give us the opportunity to reconnect to what was once forgotten. In this final chapter of Lotto Thought's miniseries In Our Blood, we'll explore these moments of when racist ideology did divide Native and Black kinship and how those moments never last forever. My name is C.A. Davis, and this is a Lotto Thought. In Our Blood, Chapter 3, A People Divided. I don't know about you, but website design seems like a lot of fun until you have to code and actually make the cool images in your head come to life on screen. That is exactly why I called Tech Rewire. If you need your website to do a little bit more than the prefab options out there, but you really don't know where to begin, go to techrewire.com. Ahmed, the lead developer, is not only thorough and reliable, he is dedicated. In fact, he already helped me out with the security breach on the Lotto site and constantly keeps all its plugins up to date. Follow that link in this episode's description and check out Tech Rewire for all your web development needs. I definitely haven't looked back since. Members of the Freedmen have a message for the Cherokee Nation. Treat me right. This uh, unjust, illegal ruling, which deprives the Freedmen of their citizenship rights. Last week's Supreme Court ruling takes about 2,800 people off the Cherokee list of citizenship. The Freedmen were either freed slaves or children. On August 22, 2011, in a four to one ruling, the Cherokee Nation Supreme Court overturned a Cherokee District Court's decision to void an amendment to the tribe's constitution, which was made four years earlier in 2007. A ruling that solidified the legislative stance Cherokee Nation had taken much earlier in the 1980s. What happens in the early 1980s 
you have Ross Wimmer as the chief, and he sees that the freedmen are not voting for him. So then he begins to block the freedmen from voting. This is Marilyn Van, member of Cherokee Nation, descendant of Cherokee freedmen, and the founder and president of the Descendants of Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes Association. You might recognize her voice from the news clip you just heard. Never made, and whether somebody was on the Freedman roll or the by blood roll was not determinative of whether or not the person had Indian ancestry. And from a few other quotes throughout the miniseries. They began to put these moratoriums on Freedmen being registered in the tribes. Now, there wasn't actually a law, they just started doing it. These policies continued with other people. Like the Cherokee Nation's first woman serving as principal chief from 1985 to 1995, Wilma Mankiller. Who, you know, basically said, well, the freedmen shouldn't have rights. And the principal chief from 1999 to 2011, Chad Smith. And he was someone opposed to the freedmen from the get-go. And it was Chad Smith's chiefdom that pushed for a new Cherokee constitution that would have completely written out all descendants of freedmen from being full Cherokee citizens regardless of any Cherokee blood relations at all. They were not allowing freedmen to vote. They, they wouldn't process your application for tribal membership. And almost all of the persons of African descent whose ancestors had been listed on these Dawes rolls had been listed as freedmen. About 12% of the tribe as it was in 1900. What had become a prolonged legal battle in 2011 for the descendants of those listed as freedmen on the Cherokee Dawes Rolls was really a boiling point for an even longer, contentious relationship between Cherokee and African peoples. 1824, one of the first laws that made it illegal to free your slave in order to marry her came in 1824. But, you know, in the very early days, the Cherokee Nation didn't have slave codes or black codes. Let's um, let's recall what got us here, right? Sixteen nineteen. Pirates bring captives from Africa's Gold Coast into Jamestown, the English Virginia Commonwealth. One hundred years later. The indigenous slave trade reaches its peak around 1715, at the start of the Amasi War. Then, in the mid-1700s, when the American colonies find a new labor source to replace who had become targets for colonial genocide, the African transatlantic slave trade ramps up. This tidal wave of blood and chains is what created the conditions under which the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee Creek, and eventually the Seminole Nations would survive by becoming civilized. That's Doug Keel, member of the Oneida Nation, Turtle Clan, and assistant professor of history at Northwestern University. When European colonizers arrive, they begin this assimilative process, which is initially very much about whether one is Christian or not. That is the determinant of whether or not one is civilized or not. This is where ideas of blood and race come into play to create a permanent category that says, despite having Christian education, they still could never be civilized. What started as a religious assimilative process continued in the 1700s as an economic 
and political process. The five so-called civilized tribes. That's Ariella Gross, the John B. and Alzar Sharp Professor of Law at USC's Gould School of Law. There were leaders who saw that kind of cultural assimilation as vital to their hanging on to, to power. To say, hey, we are civilized. We are the civilized tribes. Well, um, part of civilization was the system of enslavement. Each of the five tribes developed uneven forms of chattel slavery at various times, differing between and even within each nation. As plantations pumped out cash crops, the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations, for example, followed the American South's brutal example of slavery, almost step by step, as their once lucrative fur trade diminished around the time of the American Revolution. Prior to colonization, the Muscogee Creeks held a notable reputation of taking war captives from neighboring tribes. It was a common indigenous practice that was quickly altered by Europeans as they enslaved indigenous people in the North American and Caribbean slave economy. As a result, Muscogee Creeks became well known in their homelands for raiding and capturing other indigenous tribes and profiting from turning those people into laboring commodities. And so participating in African chattel slavery wasn't much of a jump either. What was interesting though, was that Muscogee Creeks would at times welcome West African arrivals who escaped enslavement from American plantations into their tribe as kin. This would lead to a complex mixed race society where free African descended kin would hold important positions within the tribe, despite Creeks buying and selling Africans on America's slave market. Among the five tribes, only the Seminole could claim a larger reputation for commingling with African peoples. We'll talk about that in a minute. So, somewhere in the middle, between the Choctaw and Chickasaw's brutality and the complex societies of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole nations, was the Cherokee's initial participation in America's slave-based economy. The Cherokee, I think, are in some contrast to the Seminole Nation in that they did, by the antebellum period, actually develop something much closer to uh, the antebellum plantation system that you see in the rest of the U.S. South. But as early as 1730, Cherokees would also take in African runaways. These arrivals would become kin, marry or have children within the tribe, or, of course, be enslaved by the Cherokee, but not just for their labor, but for their intellectual skills, such as English translation, or to better understand their colonial adversaries' cultural customs. However, much like the Chickasaw and Choctaw, after the American Revolution, the Cherokee made a choice to adhere to George Washington's assimilationist policies, which demanded indigenous tribes to participate in fixed agricultural development. This was a deliberate attempt to put an end to nomadic hunting culture and enforce ideologies of private property onto indigenous tribes. So in order to make those plantations profitable, there were some planters among the Cherokee who owned 
more than 40 enslaved people. And they created legal regulations restricting the lives, the marriages of enslaved people in very similar ways to the U.S. South. There might be a slave that would be freed and adopted into a clan and would, you know, marry. But as time went on and more white men came into the Cherokee Nation with Mary Indian women would be adopted as intermarried citizens. And they would bring slaves with them, black people. And so they began to push for slave codes and to have a, a lower class society with blacks on the bottom. To become civilized then in the new world was to learn and perform barbarism. Eventually, there were laws that a black slave couldn't learn to read and write. In the 1839 Constitution, a person with African ancestry, even if he was recognized as a citizen, wouldn't be able to hold an office. So, you know, you got more and more of these things in time going up to the Civil War. As I mentioned in the first chapter of this miniseries, all five tribes went through some version of this process, to the point where the majority of each tribe voted to side with the Confederacy. And then, when the Civil War ends... 1866, the treaty between the federal government and the Cherokee Nation stated that the freedmen... Which included both newly emancipated black natives and those who had already been living freely within the tribe. ...would have all the rights of native Cherokees. And just shortly after the treaty was signed, the tribal government also changed their constitution to where there were no discrimination against persons of African ancestry at all. Now those treaties are considered a real sovereignty issue for those nations. They look back and say, you know, that was a real encroachment on our sovereignty that that treaty forced us to uh, take anybody as a citizen rather than deciding ourselves. An unjust act requires false justification. The Treaty of 1866 for the Cherokee was exactly that. An excuse. Decades after the Indian Reorganization Act in 1934, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. The federal government started reconfiguring its BIA policies, giving tribes more independence in how they governed themselves. Roll forward another half century to 1983. The freedmen are not voting for Chief Swimmer. When Chief Swimmer is faced with a challenging re-election campaign. I mean, what he probably could have done was just meet with some of the freedmen leaders in different communities. And, you know, there could have been some dialogue, but he didn't do it. And to him, it was easier just, well, you know, I'm just going to push these people out. Swimmer's argument for stricter Cherokee nationalism 
and the disenfranchisement of descendants of those listed as freedmen on the Dawes Rolls was not a matter of sovereignty, as he and others have since cited. It was a matter of political power. And so from 1983 to literally this year, 2021, the Cherokee freedmen have been embroiled in a fight for civil rights, as people like Swimmer, Mankiller, and Smith maintained their power by restricting freedmen from voting, and later on, trying to kick them out entirely. Chief Mankiller was no better. You know, she uh, went along with what he did. And what Chief Swimmer did was set the precedent that only those Cherokee carrying a CDIB card, a certificate degree of Indian blood proving an individual's blood quantum, could vote. Cards that many freedmen never attained because, remember, Indian freedmen were listed on the Dawes Rolls without any indication of how much Indian blood they had running through their veins. Then we get to Chief Smith, who said, they're a threat, they're dangerous. You know, they don't belong here. Sound familiar? We're going to have strong, incredible borders. We're going to build the wall. We're talking about long-standing members, people who've been affiliated with the tribe. And then, in 2001, Marilyn herself was denied membership to the Cherokee Nation. I was very surprised. I'm a person of African ancestry, have never said anything other. But my family roots in the tribes is a part of me. My father was registered on the Dawes Rolls. He was born a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. He didn't receive U.S. citizenship until after an act of Congress was passed. The same as any other member of an Indian tribe. And if it was not for this act of Congress, when they denationalized us, we would basically be people without a country. Stop and think of that. Of course, Cherokee Nation was not the only one of the five tribes to find ways of accruing power and resources by kicking out their descendants of freedmen. All five tribes were and still are betraying treaties, their own constitutions, and even their own family members to this day. Anyone enrolled in a federal recognized tribe, the Supreme Court ruled that anyone enrolled was classified as an Indian. Well, the former chief told me, he says, yeah, that might be true. But you'll never be looked at as an Indian here. This is a cousin I grew up with, Chief Harjo. After the break, how the revered, undefeated Seminole people were broken by the United States one-drop rule. (laughs) 
Much of the music featured in today's episode was generously provided by Grammy-nominated cellist, composer, and Mohawk descendant Don Avery, whose music creates a contemporary soundscape from spiritual, pop, and classical elements. And I think you'll find that to be true as you listen to this episode. So thank you very much, Don, for supporting this Lotto Thought miniseries. And speaking of, let's get back to the show. November 29th, 1837, in the middle of the night, on the eastern edge of the Florida Peninsula, and in the depths of a Spanish fortress, Castillo de San Marcos, a man, a black man, a Seminole, by the name of John Horse, waited for the guards to change watch. And then, it was time. Although John had anticipated this moment, he tried to push away the doubt creeping up in the back of his mind, that in spite of weeks he had been fasting, he still would not fit through the bars that held him and his fellow warriors, including his close friend and future Seminole chief, Wildcat, prisoners of the United States Army during the Second Seminole War. But to his muted joy, he did work his way through those iron bars and then, somehow, managed to free Wildcat and 16 other Seminole prisoners. The entire party snuck out from the fortress into the Florida marshes and headed back to their Seminole home. John Horse would live to become one of the most important seminal figures in the 1800s. Although he was technically born enslaved to the Seminole, John Horse's life in no way resembled those much less fortunate picking cotton in the Carolinas. He was an important translator and advisor for several chiefs, including the revered Chief Osceola, and he helped the Seminole strategize against the U.S. Empire that had been encroaching on their homelands since, well, since always. If you look at the Seminoles in Florida, they were a nation that's formed out of, you know, remnants of other indigenous peoples and maroons escaping to Florida. The very nation itself is a kind of conglomeration of, of different people. Even people nominally enslaved by the nation lived 
quite different from what was going on by that time in slave states like Virginia, the Carolinas, with white slave owners. Enslaved Seminoles would often have children born freely into the tribe, could be adopted as kin themselves over time, and usually lived in neighboring towns that farmed common crops, owning their own livestock, and simply paid an annual tribute to the tribe in exchange for protection and shared resources. Seminoles had found a way to retain indigenous practices of captivity and kinship throughout decades, centuries, of resisting colonization by cooperating with anyone who sought refuge in the Florida Everglades. And so I, I don't think it's at all wrong to look back and say, well, you actually have a very different experience of slavery. And I would say that the Seminoles in particular had this different history that plays out even after the Civil War. When the Dawes Rule started recording the five tribes in order to begin Oklahoman land allotments, the federal government skipped Seminole Nation completely. They say, oh, the Seminole are just too mixed together. There's no way to do it. Then later they do create separate roles. But there was this uh, idea, at least, that the Seminoles were different. And that was a turning point for Seminole Nation. The allocation of land and resources by the U.S. colonial empire led the tribe into a pitfall of zero-sum thinking that echoes to this day. They will count us as citizens, but they will not recognize us as their people. This is Lieta Osborne Sampson, councilwoman of the Seminole Nation representing the Cesar Bruner Band, one of the two freedmen bands recognized in the tribe. And a lot of us are blood kin to the chief, as well as myself. I'm related to the chief that's in office now. But this tribe is going to tell me, you are a citizen and not a member. For the past 21 years, Seminole Nation has been disenfranchising and withholding resources from their freedmen kin, a problem that extends directly from the Treaty of Moultrie Creek in 1823. Another excuse. Leading up to the Civil War, the U.S. never recognized Black Seminoles as being legally part of the Seminole tribe, even though many were living freely as Seminole kin. Instead, the U.S. considered them to be stolen property, as it was explicitly stated in the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. And so today, the logic for the Seminole Nation's disenfranchisement of their black freedmen kin is based on U.S. racial ideology. What didn't help was the fact that John Horse, along with hundreds of black Seminoles and his close friend, Chief Wildcat, left their Western Indian Territory in 1844, fleeing the neighboring Muscogee Creeks who were capturing and selling Black Seminoles into slavery. John Horse would go so far as to fight for the Mexican government in an attempt to win land where Black Seminoles could exist freely forever. The sad thing about John Horse and the people that were with him in battle in Mexico and different areas is that their people are strained from our nation. They're in Texas, they're called the absentee Seminoles. 
a state-recognized tribe cut off completely from their estranged kin in Oklahoma, and named accordingly because they never made it back to the Western territories when the Dawes Rolls were being recorded. And our people here in Oklahoma do not want to reside with them, but they do embrace the story. Their absence is felt both emotionally and politically to this day. Because so many black Seminoles were gone from Oklahoma during the land allotment process, the U.S. had a far easier time segregating their roles. Because, remember, those who were visibly black were recorded as freedmen with no indication of their blood quantum whatsoever. Fewer black Seminole enrollees meant less time the BIA spent arguing with folks about their blood relations. The policies and unrelenting threat of genocide by the U.S. government are what laid the foundation of all five tribes' anti-Black practices. You know, earlier you mentioned the term triangulation, and and I think that's such a an important concept. Peoples who are fighting for self-determination fighting against power structures, but are doing it in different ways and sometimes in a way that is about triangulating this intermediate position. Of replicating the very power structure dominating your own people in order to evade complete eradication. So it's no wonder that indigenous people and nations judge each other by their blood status and skin color to this day. As Doug Keel said back in the first chapter, All this stuff about blood quantum creates this paradigm where if you're not a quote-unquote full blood, this American conception of things, if you're not 100%, then you're, you're less than, right? You're not actually indigenous. And that does a number on people psychologically. And it degrades kinship into a spiral of zero-sum survivalism. From the earliest times through to the present, there's an economic incentive to keep the group smaller. You know, there's a limited pie and who's going to share in it. I mentioned the year 2000 as the starting point of the Seminole Freedmen's current battle for civil rights. But really, Seminole Nation's color line hardened back in the 1930s. In 1934, newly instated with sovereign powers thanks to the Indian Reorganization Act, the Seminole Nation fought to push the remaining black Seminoles and freedmen out of the tribe completely, an exploit that was never fully accomplished. Then, in 1976, the Seminole Nation was awarded $56 million in resource allocation from the BIA as a settlement for the land that was taken from them when they signed the Treaty of Mulchie Creek in 1823. Fast forward another 24 years, Seminole Nation made the argument that their freedmen had no claim to that $56 million due to the legal lease of the U.S. government, who had always painted black Seminoles as stolen property, not legally Seminole kin. The echoes of Jim Crow that we hear in Seminole Nation today are not really focused on delisting folks like the Cherokee but rather it's about withholding resources from their freedmen while still counting them 
for BIA resource allocation. When our chiefs go to Washington, when they're applying for the assistance the tribes get, they do not call themselves members. They call themselves citizens. And they count all of us as citizens. When they come back across the border, our nation calls us citizens, not members. And that's where they divide the line. So since I'm the citizen, I'm not a member of their group. I don't get the benefits, but I'm counting for it. And I sit on that council. You know, to me, the thing is... Joining us again, Marilyn Van. Don't say, well, we're going to break our treaty. We're going to break our word to these people. Or we're going to keep these people for head count, but we're going to block them from services because there won't be enough. To me, the thing is, let's find some ways for there to be more or to have more, to build up the tribal resources, whether that's through the government or outside the government. Thank you, Mr. Ross. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The chair now yields to the chair of the full financial services committee, Ms. Waters. Uh, today, we're here to discuss the chronic housing and community development needs of Native American communities and the reauthorization of Native housing programs. However, I want to say thank you to... Um, As COVID-19 overtook the entire world, we saw disproportionate rates of infection and death in all underserved racial groups in the United States. However, we must ensure that federal funds are not used to perpetuate anti-Blackness and racial injustice. When vaccines were released for emergency use, doses were delivered throughout the U.S. in mid-December of 2020 specifically for tribal members. But when Lietta Osborne Sampson tried to sign up for her vaccination, she was denied because her CDIB card displayed zero zero Indian blood and it says Friedman and I was a citizen and they told me that they do not recognize their citizens there. Lawsuit after lawsuit, finally establishing the Freedmen are full tribal citizens in 2003. But Lietta's alleged story proof they're still being denied services. Anthony Connolly says it happened to him, too. A lot of my family members have died, passed away, you know, waiting to get, you know, help services. Both Conley and Lietta have sat on the Seminole Nation Tribal Council for over 10 years. They're working with other freedmen right now on yet another legal battle. We're trying to pull together $10,000 for the lawyer that we have chosen to go back into federal court to try to resolve this situation. The Indian Health Services sending you support statements saying- I, want to, I won't go through the numbers. Let Ms. Van please respond to my question. Greetings, Chairwoman Waters. Thank you again. These uh, exchanges between California Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Marilyn Van took place on July 27, 2021, during the congressional hearing of the reauthorization of the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act of 1996. We have here two representatives of the Seminole Nation, the Freedmen Bands. There are persons who cannot, who have homes they can no longer live in. Uh, desperate poverty. You were talking about other services, medical services. Within the pandemic, Friedman not been able to get shots. And Seminole Nation telling IHS. As I understand it, it interrupt you just for a minute. The Seminole denied vaccination 
for COVID-19, despite the fact that we had given the money to all of the tribes. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. They had told IHS and, and gave them a list of people to not serve, um, to not serve them with vaccinations. And people died, including leaders of the freedmen people. That's correct. So, I don't know what else to say. Yes, The case is very clear. Uh, I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this meeting. It's so very important. But I want to tell you, this issue is not going to go away. I am going to work on this issue until we get the right thing done. I yield back the balance of my time. You know, um, if I can just speak plainly for a second, a lot of mixed folks will essentialize our mixedness as a personal identity issue, right? This liminal space between categories. But um, the reality for mixed black native people is it's not their individual identity that's at stake. It's their collective lives, their future as part of their tribe and their tribe's future as a whole. This is why it's so important to follow these histories and, and these impacts of legislation and treaties and policymaking rather than, I don't know, just talking about how I feel when there's no box for mixed race. Because some people don't have that luxury when they're fighting for their lives. You know, I, I love my grandfather. He was a very kind man. He's very loving on council like I do today and he said one time he said that our people embraced a lie that skin matters just the color and sometimes we get caught up in it ourselves he would you know pretty much line us up at the shade of our skin and the lighter you were then you got a little bit more money you were more spoken to if you were very light-skinned. You were the top of the line. And I loved him dearly, you know. But this is the way it was done. You know, I have a sister that's a little darker than I am. And one Christmas, I uh, got a present, and she didn't. And I was getting a little older. And I seen a difference for the first time in my life, and it was within my family. And... I got angry and tore up the gift. And then I got punished for that because I was trying to show my sister that I didn't feel the same way. Genocide in slow motion. The lack of one equal citizenship. Indigeneity has been so pushed to the brink by American law and racist ideology that in the 1900s, native nationalism was seen as a strategy to keep as much of the small allocation of federal resources reserved for as many, quote, true Indians as they could. A people divided. But it's changing. Slowly. Unsurely, but 
it is changing. All those centuries ago, while it took decades of litigation, I'm pleased that Chief Hoskin is leading the Cherokee Nation to honor the rights of Cherokee freedmen. Other tribes must follow suit. Follow suit. Follow suit. Follow suit. After the break. My running for office did result in the freedmen, as well as other adopted classes in the tribe, the Delaware, the Shawnee, adopted Creeks, adopted whites. Everybody can now run for office. We don't need second, third, or fourth class citizens in this tribal nation. The resolution of the Cherokee Freedmen controversy and the future. If you're an editor, y'all know how hard it is to find just the right music cue for your project. And even then, just the right moment in that cue to use in just the right way. Let me tell you, that is a lot easier to do if you had a library of over 800,000 music cues. Well, if you check out APM Music, they have exactly that. Over 800,000 tracks many of which have alternative cuts and stem tracks that you can use to manipulate your cues to sound like they were made precisely for your show, film, or podcast. As a thank you to APM for supporting this show, check them out and see if their rates can fit your production budget today. All right, back to the show. Sam Ford is a Cherokee freedman. I'm an African-American with Cherokee heritage. My great hey, hey, CA, welcome back. Thompson to dive right back in. Was a slave of the Cherokees. It's a little-known chapter in American history. The this Cherokee is a CNN news report from 2011. Whose members own slaves. In 2007, Cherokee Nation passed a law requiring proof of Indian blood to be a member. The proof is based on a record that was created a century ago called the Dawes Rolls. The freedmen say the Dawes Rolls are wrong because they were based on how you looked. If you looked black, they wrote Cherokee Freedmen. If you looked uh, not black, they wrote Cherokee. Many freedmen were of mixed Cherokee and African blood, but on the rolls, they were listed with no Indian blood. Last month, it all went to federal court. I was restored as a member of the Cherokee Nation. A settlement has let the freedmen back into the tribe for now. The descendants can vote in the election for the Cherokee chief, but there's no guarantee that they'll get to stay in the tribe. Reporting for In America, Soledad O'Brien, CNN. Let's, um, let me backtrack. Late 2001, I was rejected from being able to become a member of the tribe. So I did some legal research, got some people together, got a uh, organization going. The Descendants of the Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes Association. Once formed, the organization started laying the groundwork for the legal battles to come. August of 2003, we filed a lawsuit which was trying to block the federal government from approving this new constitution which would have written the Cherokee freedmen out from being full, equal citizens entirely. And were unsuccessful. But then, before the Freedmen Association could regroup, Chief Smith 
and the Cherokee Nation filed their own lawsuit against the Freedmen. This is uh, originally Van V. Norton. They filed suit in Tulsa. We asked the judge to move that lawsuit to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, separate to the federal lawsuit, there was another tribal lawsuit, but the judge said there was nothing in the tribal constitution to keep freedmen from being members of the tribe. So the tribe began to register some freedmen again. And then roll forward another few years. These lawsuits are continuing. So finally, we jump up to 2011. About the time when Chad Smith was running for principal chief against Bill John Baker. Who had always tried to be fair with the freedmen in his district as a councilman. You can probably tell where this is going. And so Mr. Smith tries to keep us from voting. Smith, just like Ross Swimmer in the 80s, was politically motivated to delist descendants of freedmen, or at the very least bar them from voting, right before, or even during, a very close election. But unlike Swimmer, Mr. Baker wins the election. Smith is voted out of office. Baker comes in, and almost immediately, the tide changes in the Cherokee Freedmen's favor. In 2012, the U.S. District Court of Appeals heard Maryland's case and reversed the decision made by the lower court in 2011, which takes us back to where we started after the break. A settlement has let the freedmen back into the tribe for now. For now. For now. A year later, in 2013, Maryland and her fellow plaintiffs and the Cherokee Nation jointly petitioned the U.S. District Court for D.C. to resolve their lawsuit concerning the citizenship status and rights of the Cherokee freedmen. And finally, four more years after making that petition. 2017, the judge rules the freedmen do have all the rights of native Cherokees. And so the tribe accepted that. And almost immediately, freedmen and their children who had been denied citizenship status began enrolling and re-enrolling in the Cherokee Nation. After approximately 8,500 people re-enrolled in Cherokee Nation since the 2017 ruling, on May 12, 2021, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, the first Native American woman to serve in that position, officially approved the 2017 rewritten Cherokee Constitution which officially strikes all, quote, by blood citizenship or any other right or privilege from the document. 38 years. That's how long the contemporary fight lasted for Cherokee Freedmen's civil rights. But of course, that's just the Cherokee Nation, one out of the five tribes. Other tribes must follow suit. Uh, this is a fight that's about fairness and equality. For one minority group, to discriminate against a minority group will cannot stand. And as the chair of this committee, I don't intend for it to stand. I yield back my time. There's lots of work that needs to be done in the Seminole Nation to get things lined up. Before the hearing, uh, any, any individual could send information in. And so Lietta sent a statement in to the committee staff to become a part of the record. Lietta talked about being run out of some clinic, just told to get out if, if she knew what was best for her and that sort of thing. They're not actually gonna take a gun and shoot somebody who comes to the clinic. I mean, the chiefs don't want that to happen because 
that would bring the Justice Department down here. So, you know, they're just going to tell you to go away. Lietta was recently re-elected into her Seminole Council seat, representing the Cesar Bruner Band. She, along with the Seminole Freedmen and Maryland's organization, are still collecting funds to fuel the legal battle still ahead of them. Even when you have your basic retainer, you know, you don't want the lawyer to walk off the next month or two, and then you have travel costs, you have filing fees, you have other things like this. So we're thankful to those good people out here who have donated money to help Seminoles. We're very grateful. And so what's the status of the remaining nations of the five tribes? There is some activity in the tribal court down there in the Creek Nation. There were some Creek Freedmen descendants that filed a case in Washington, D.C. in 2018, and the case was dismissed in 2019. The judge basically told those individuals to apply for Creek citizenship and to challenge it in the tribal court first before coming back there which uh, those litigants are now in the tribal court, but the court does not seem to want to really move on their case. With the Choctaws and Chickasaws, a lot of that is just more kind of wait and see on, on what's happening with the other tribes. But, you know, I, I think I think a lot of this is stalling. The unfortunate thing is there's been a court case. Such as Seminole Nation v. Norton 20 years ago. The tribe, just in contempt of the judge, reissued the people's cards in order to avoid giving their services. You know, people can't go to court all the time. This is very difficult. This isn't like the tribe that gets grants to run a legal department, attorneys, prosecutors court officials, judges, all of these things. You know, the freedmen don't get any of that. I mean, the, the thing is for me is that this this isn't just an indigenous problem, right? From what I understand of the of the centuries of stories, it's it's a problem of the American government's creation. Blood quantum, the one-drop rule, how it affects the five tribes, and how Native peoples understand themselves today. Definitely, like, people denying me that I'm Native American. This is uh, Monica Deschardins in her interview for the first episode of this series. At the grocery store, I just remember kind of like people staring because, you know, I, I stood out. I was the only little black, like a little black girl just in the grocery store, with, like, surrounded by Native Americans. It's the very American laws and ideologies that really come to inflict tremendous violence on Native communities. Doug Keel. Families and relationships and our own sense of being. The encroachment on Indigenous land and sovereignty by the U.S. government is what created incentives for Indigenous peoples to use anti-Blackness in their kinship processes, which, along with the legacies of enslavement, has led many Black Natives and Black U.S. citizens to distrust Indigenous peoples. On the other hand, 
Settler colonialism also stoked black violence against natives, sometimes even by those who were kin themselves. Many of the black Seminoles who followed John Horse to Texas eventually became known as Buffalo Soldiers, who violently displaced and killed Southwestern tribes for the Mexican and American governments in exchange for their own safe haven. When your choices are bad, for example, um, you know, risk getting captured into slavery in Oklahoma territory, or help colonize parts of what would become Texas, it's worth asking, who ultimately are those choices serving? I mean, there's so many ironies to this, right? Ariella Gross, joining us again. It's the federal government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs in particular in the 20th century that brings blood quantum to the Indian tribes as the basis for membership. They're the ones who come up with this Jim Crow enrollment and, and the whole instantiation of blood as the basis. At the same time, going back to the Treaty of 1866 and then going forward to many of the contemporary court cases, it's the federal government saying to the tribes, you must accept the freedmen as citizens. We are the defenders of freedmen citizenship rights. And so it's really not surprising in that sense that Indian nations are going to see this with a lot of skepticism and see it as motivated primarily by an attack on their sovereignty. So, um, where do you go from here? Well, there are some serious concerns. In the case of the United Nations and many others, uh, the concerns being demographic collapse. If if our identity is, is tied to a math equation, we can't always stay ahead of those numbers. You know, the vast majority of people who are enrolled currently in this current generation in the Oneida uh, Nation community meet the minimum threshold for blood quantum. When people say you're going to blood quantum your way out of existence. This is Kim Talbert chiming in for just a second. She's the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples Technoscience and Environment at the University of Alberta and member of the Sistan Wapten Oyate. No tribe's going to do that. They're going to change the enrollment criteria. They've been doing that for the last hundred years. You know, every few years, my tribe has a referendum. Should we go from one quarter total Indian blood to one eighth? We will eventually because, you know, three of my mother's six grandchildren can't get enrolled. While it might seem that blood quantum is really in the worst sense succeeding in what it was originally designed to do, Ultimately, it's up to the tribes themselves to decide who does or does not belong as kin. And there have been and, and remain many examples of how indigeneity can continue, not only with, but because of their black native kin. The Narragansett in Rhode Island are the one group I found that identifies as Indian but doesn't really reject their African ancestry. There's a period before the New Deal 
when detribalization is happening at the turn of the 20th century, you know, trying to end the sovereignty of Indian nations and make people accept individual U.S. citizenship. And the Narragansett, in this series of, of hearings regarding the possibility of accepting U.S. citizenship, they say, yes, we're, we're mixed. We do not want this Negro citizenship. And if we are to have some other citizenship, we prefer to see it enjoyed by someone else before we accept it. We are not Negroes. We are the heirs of Nenegrit and the great chiefs and warriors of the Narragansetts. Because... When your ancestors stole the Negro from Africa and brought him among us and made a slave of him, we extended him the hand of friendship and permitted his blood to mingle with ours. Are we to be called Negroes and to be told that we may be made Negro citizens? We claim that while one drop of Indian blood remains in our veins, we are entitled to the rights and privileges guaranteed by your ancestors to ours by solemn treaty which without a breach of faith, you cannot violate. That's who we are, that's okay, and we don't want your second-class citizenship. Perhaps an even stronger example is the Augustine Band of the Kauia. The smallest federally recognized tribe in the United States currently with 16 members. In the late 90s, the Augustine Band were brought back from the brink of their own demographic collapse by the sole remaining tribal member and contemporary matriarch, Marianne Martin, a black native. With the help and guidance of other Kauia bands throughout the Southwest region, Martin rebuilt the Augustine band's economic health and future into a thriving Coachella community by developing its games and green energy enterprises that continue under the leadership of Marianne's own daughter, Amanda Vance. Today, the tribe looks much different than what the U.S. has taught us to imagine a, quote, Indian to look like. And that is really the problem here, right? We're taught to think about belonging as a matter of blood, traceable ancestry, phenotype, but really, belonging is coalition building. My name is Dallas Goldtooth. I'm a Dakota man, and I greet each and every one of you with a good heart. To get right down to it, I've dedicated my entire life to indigenous rights. I've dedicated my life to the dismantling of white supremacy. And I know that journey is incomplete unless I'm also advocating for the liberation of black people. Belonging is shared communal responsibility of recognizing the wrongs that we've committed to each other in order to reconcile so that we may continue to fight for, not against one another and towards a common goal. Maybe that's why I've grown to care so much about Indian freedmen and black natives. Despite the histories of enslavement and brutality and being disenfranchised to this day, all of the freedmen, the men and women that I spoke to about these histories, they share a deep pride in being native and in being black. And they truly believe in building a future that reaches back to the past to remember how, in many cases, they were once stronger together so that one day they may be stronger again. 
you know, as long as there's a lot of disunity and wanting to tear people down or take away based on blood quantum or slave ancestry or appearance, you know, that person looks too white or he's got blue eyes or whatever, and I'm not going to vote for him. The tribe is not going to progress. But things are changing my running for office and the tribal court litigation did result in the freedmen as well as other adopted classes in the tribe, the Delaware, the Shawnee, adopted Creeks, adopted whites. Everybody can now run for office. But there are still people who oppose freedmen citizenship or they want the freedmen to be a second class citizens or third class citizens. And so the freedmen are going to have to continue to be vigilant and work to get people who want to follow the law into office. And as for the future of the freedmen's continued fight for equality? My daughter, as time has went on, she is becoming more active. She is an officer in a descendants organization, as well as the African Indians organization. She was in Washington, D.C., attended the hearing, attending the meeting that we had with the the Senate staffer and the one with uh, the congressman staffer. Lietta's two daughters, they have official positions. One is a treasurer, I think one is a secretary. So as I said, there are some young people, but there's not enough young people who are ready to take places of the older people who are passionate, who have seen real discrimination. Ariella, I just, uh, I have one more question for you. What don't blood tell? <laughs> you know, um, I uh, named the book What Blood Won't Tell because of the overriding 19th century belief of this essentialist racial identity. And yet there's nothing actually in your blood. Blood is red, you know, there's no mysterious essence. And so all that they were really doing was creating identities through these stories that they're telling about performance and behavior. It's not blood that will tell, it's your neighbors who will tell. It's it's the Jaws Commission that will tell. It's a census taker or it's the legal process itself that will tell, not some essence in your blood because there is no essential racial identity. Lieta, I only have one more question for you. Um, Thank you for giving me all the time that you have. Uh, And I was wondering if, if you could speak directly with Secretary Holland today, right now, What would you say to her? I would say to her, you have to understand that the word Seminole is not my race. 
it's a name given from someone who spoke on us as runaways and wild people because of the vigor that we had to fight for our freedom. Can you imagine Seminole Nation rising to its peak with all of its people under the same umbrella that we become an asset to America and not a liability? That's the future I see in our nation. Where we can rise up and be an asset to this United States that we live within and do great things in it for the sake of all the people of the United States of America. Can you just imagine the great things that can come out of it? There is indeed a future for Native peoples. The only question is, what kind of future will it be? One gnarled by the legal machinations of racist American laws, statutes, and eugenic ideals? Or a future that resembles something closer to a form of kinship that once existed centuries ago? Today's episode was produced, edited, sound designed, and mixed by me, C.A. Many thanks to this episode's guests, Marilyn Van, Doug Keel, Ariella Gross, Lieta Osborne-Sampson, and Kim Tallbear. And another huge thanks to Grammy-nominated cellist and Mohawk descendant Don Avery and Makai McCraven for a few of the tracks that you heard on this episode. And the reading that we heard of the Narragansett's testimony against U.S. citizenship was performed by David Kelly. Last but not least, if you learned anything from today's show, please consider doing two things. I invite you to donate to the Seminole Freedmen's Legal Fund that's linked on this episode's description. Secondly, if you'd like to stay up to date with this developing story, because this, the story is not over, I, I invite you to follow the Choctaw and Chickasaw Freedmen on Twitter and Instagram. They cultivate and share news and current events about the freedmen of all five tribes, so give them a follow. All of the relevant links and accounts, along with a bunch of other articles and source footage, are linked on this episode's webpage as well, so check that out. Finally, consider supporting this show by going to lottothought.com and sign up for the mailing list, rate and review on iTunes, or join the show's Patreon. All of that would help out a lot, and all of it, of course, is linked on our site. All right, y'all. I'm your host, C.A. Davis, and this was a Lotto Thoughts finale of In Our Blood, Chapter 3, A People Divided. Thank you for listening. As always, be well, stay tuned, and I'll catch you all soon.